grace, mercy, and peace to you, beloved, from God our Father and from our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. We're in Ephesians chapter 3 this morning. It is hard to bring heaven down to earth, very hard, or to actually live like what the Bible says about us is true, like we really are who God has said we are. One of the main reasons for that, I think, is the reality of suffering. Suffering seems to widen this gap, this distance between what God says is true about us and what we actually experience on a daily basis. What actual hope is there, if we're being honest, for a world where 19 children and two teachers can be murdered on any given Tuesday? What does theology have to do with our daily lives? Doesn't it seem so impractical and heady and therefore unhelpful at best, unnecessary at worst? Paul has just told us that in Christ, we Gentile, non-Jewish believers have been created as this completely new people where there's no longer um, any of the former distinctions that once existed and separated uh, Jews and non-Jewish people in the sense of who God calls His people. He has just told us that we're no longer strangers and aliens, but fellow citizens with the saints, members of the household of God. In chapter 2, verse 19, that we're a part of this one body of Christ that has been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets of which Christ Jesus Himself is the cornerstone, and as such we're being or we're growing into one holy temple in the Lord, being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. In chapter 2, verses 20 through 23, we've been given a whole new identity, an eternal one, by virtue of being in Christ since He accomplished full redemption. But before Paul moves on to share with us the practical outworking, if you will, of having this new identity in Christ, he He has to make something clear. That's the way that he writes. And that's how this new identity isn't meant to just affect the way we see ourselves, but the way we see our suffering since we remain in the flesh on this earth. Sometimes we experience suffering directly because we're sinners and there are consequences sometimes of the actions that we take and the decisions that we make. Other times we suffer because the world is broken and it's limited and it's insufficient to make everything whole. But the suffering Paul speaks of here is the suffering we experience precisely because we are His church in a world that Christ has overcome and Satan and the forces of evil and the forces of humans hate Him for it and they're going to take it out on us. Suffering can make it seem like Jesus has won the victory. Yes, we proclaim this, but then he's left us on the battlefield to deal with the mess. Paul would assure us this morning, as he assured the Ephesian Christians, this is not the case. That's not what our suffering is. The suffering we experience precisely because we are people of faith whose identity rests in Christ alone is not evidence of God's abandonment of us, but of our hope and our victory. 
I wish I could remember where I first read this quote. I cannot. I couldn't find it. It's not original with me, but a gentleman wrote, When you hear of suffering and persecution, when you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be shaken. For all these things are only dust in the wake of the plowman. The fact that God has realized His eternal purpose in Christ Jesus our Lord by creating the church to be His eternal vessel, His cosmic vessel of proclamation, means that even our suffering, even our suffering, is evidence of His victory and ought to actually strengthen our faith. Let me pray and we'll begin. Lord God, our Holy Father, Hallowed be your great name. We come to you this morning needing to hear you speak to us through Christ by your spirit in this text. We come to you on a weekend where we not only remember and honor those soldiers who have given their lives for our freedom. We thank you, Father, for their bravery and sacrifice. We thank you for the sacrifice their families and loved ones also made. We thank you that in your providence, this is the means you have ordained to make us free here. But we also mourn this weekend the brutal murder of a whole classroom full of children that were my son's age. Lord, as you will and as you know, have mercy. Center us now on the risen Christ. Reveal to us how we endure when... Not only our world is broken, but we are too. Have your way through this text, your living word this morning. Amen. Amen. Beginning in verse 1 of Ephesians chapter 3. For this reason I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus on behalf of you Gentiles, assuming that you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you, how the mystery was made known to me by revelation, as I have written briefly. Notice that Paul is about to continue right on with his letter, but he stops at the end of verse 1. That's what's singled in that long dash you might have in your text. Look over very quickly to verse 14, because he picks it right back up for this reason. You see that. It's how he started verse 1. But he, when he reminds himself, his, his purpose was to start praying For the Ephesian church, but when he reminds himself that he's a prisoner of Christ Jesus on their behalf, he stops. Paul's suffering reminds him, remember, he's writing this letter from prison. It reminds him of the situation. It pulls him back to see reality. You Gentiles, I'm assuming, he's saying, I'm assuming that you understand the significance of what I'm telling you in this letter. That I, Paul, was tasked with watching over Gentiles for the sake of God's grace and that what I'm telling you was given to me for you by the direct personal revelation of Jesus Christ himself. I've told you a little bit about that, but I hope you fully grasped what I'm saying to you, the depth of this, the magnitude of this, of what Jesus has told me for you. And in verse four, when you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ. They're able to perceive in Paul's writings there's something different about it. In particular, that something major has happened. Everything Paul writes has this either blatant or hidden magnitude to it because something has changed in what had been written before. 
what Paul is preaching about and writing about and traveling over the known world for means that something massive has been revealed by God now to humanity. We pick it up in verse 5, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. This mystery is that the Gentiles, non-Jews, are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. This news of what Jesus has accomplished for sinners, the mystery of Christ. Remember, the one in whom God's plan for the fullness of time is being accomplished according to his purpose for history. It was not completely hidden in the past before he came, was it? But it has now been made known with a clarity and a fullness it did not have before due to the literal accomplishment of Christ of the work of redemption that created this one new man in place of the two that made Gentile Ephesians and West Virginians the recipients of God's special revelation through Paul. The Gentiles are recipients of such a gift of this revealing of God's eternal mystery and eternal purpose. That's being proclaimed to Gentiles after all this time? Now, what had once not been made known in the past has been revealed. In other words, there's clarity by the Holy Spirit to his, to Christ's holy apostles, which is what Paul is, and prophets. So Paul is explaining what his role and those like him actually is. And the fact that now even the prophets, all of God's speakers, know this truth in full. Think about, remember Moses and Elijah talking with Jesus on the Mount of transfiguration back in the Gospels. They were having the truth, the whole plan revealed to them. Now the prophets realize this. But what exactly is the difference between what was revealed to the Old Testament prophets and what has been revealed to the New Testament apostles? In particular, it seems, to Paul. Because Paul is unique. I mean, what's so new here, if you think about it? From Abraham to Zechariah... God promised to the patriarchs and through all the prophets, really, that Israel would be a blessing to all the nations, that one day Gentiles would stream to the temple to worship the true God, and that ultimately God was going to redeem uh, those he chose from every part of the earth. Paul even appealed to Old Testament texts like that to support or justify his ministry to Gentiles. You see that in texts like Romans 4 and Romans 9 through 11 and Galatians 3 and Four And earlier, right here in chapter 2 in Ephesians, Paul alluded to Isaiah to show that both Gentiles and Jews have received God's peace. There was even provision uh, in the law, covenant itself, for Gentiles that wanted to become a part of Israel through circumcision and obedience to the law. So what is so different about what has been revealed to Paul and now to these or for these Gentiles, what is so different about that from what was revealed to the Old Testament prophets? It seems very like, well, yeah, we always knew Gentiles were going to be a part of it, right? It's partially, what is different is partially the revelation that Jews and Gentiles will enter the kingdom of God on equal footing, yes. 
that Israel, according to the flesh, would no longer be the point of entry into God's kingdom. But there would be a new Israel, a new temple, a new sacrifice, and a new people of God. But the text seems to be saying that there's an even bigger difference between what had been revealed by God before Jesus died and rose again and ascended back to the Father, as opposed to after all this happened. And the Old Testament prophets before that happened did not have the same kind of revelation or clarity or explanation that Paul and the apostles do, particularly Paul, now as he's writing. The difference, beloved, is the revelation and the work of the person of Jesus himself. What is truly amazing and revolutionary, says One commentator on Ephesians, Thomas Winger, is that the God-man Jesus Christ took the curse of the law upon himself and killed it on the cross, thus making the two peoples one with each other and with God. This may have been prophesied in part, but it had never happened before. That was completely new and together With the revelation of Christ himself to Paul and the apostles, the consequences of these actions taken by Jesus were unfolded so that Paul understood what it meant for all the peoples in the world. The Messiah was hidden in the Old Testament in such a way that only the person of Christ himself could open the eyes of the apostles to find him there. We see Jesus himself bear witness to this in Luke 24 and John 5. 39 in 2 Corinthians 3, 14 through 16 even. Notice here in verse 6 that this is the mystery of Christ. This is what it's all about. That the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. So, woe to us if we say, well, yeah, that's just spiritual. Beloved, look at those words. Members of the same body. Partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus. Fellow heirs. The mystery is that through this gospel, the work of Jesus Christ for sinners, for the world, God had planned from eternity to one day make a new creation. To create one new man, a man who was redeemed and not cursed by the blood and righteousness of his own son, the second Adam. Paul calls him Jesus Christ. Everything that preceded this was to accomplish this. Everything before Christ was forward looking and therefore incomplete until he came. That the plan was to unite the two into one was hidden. That there would only be one people of God. That was hidden. It isn't, you don't see it clearly when you're just reading the Old Testament. The New Testament brings this to light. The teaching of Paul uniquely brings this to light. Peter will pick up on it. Part of this is why Peter says things like he does in 2 Peter. I know that Paul is hard to understand. Right? Peter says that because what Paul is saying is so revolutionary. Even the original 12 that became 11 and then added Matthias, they didn't have the revelation Paul got. This is the climax of God's plan for history. Do you know that's what you are? The climax of God's plan for history. 
the creation of the church through Jesus Christ by means of the gospel, the word that creates faith. Since we're dead in trespasses and sins, we are heirs, members, and partakers of everything God has given in His grace. Full sons, full citizens of God's one community, which is the one body of Christ, remember, in 123, full recipients of His promise. We get it also because we are in the only faithful, obedient Israelite, Jesus Christ. The plan was to make Jesus the center of all creation through the work of redemption. To this, the church was created to be evidence of and bear witness to through its proclamation of the gospel. Verse 7 Of this gospel, I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given me by the working of his power. So Paul is just saying, all this stuff is precisely what I've been made a minister of. Back in verse 2, he calls his ministry the stewardship of God's grace. Right? The law came through Moses, John says in John 1. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. This is Paul's ministry. The stewardship of God's grace, the care of it, the proper proclamation and explanation of it for Gentiles is the centerpiece of Paul's ministry as an apostle. He was commissioned with God's own power to make sure Gentiles fully receive all the good news. Pick it up in verse 8 now. To me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things so that through the church the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known now to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. That's what this is. Sinful old Paul, as he knows himself, I doubt we would have thought of him that way. The least of all the saints. Paul's progression as a writer is very interesting. Starts out as the the least of all the apostles. He was untimely born, right? Then he calls himself the least of all the saints. Ends up calling himself, right before the end of his life, the chief of sinners. Paul thinks of himself as the lowest in the church here. The lowest of this wonderful community. This one new community. And he's a blood-born Jewish man. Right? And he says, I'm the least of all the saints. Paul is the worst sinner Paul knows. Every Christian should be able to say that about themselves. We should be arguing with Paul. No, no, no. I'm the chief of sinners. It's not a contest. It's a reality. To him, to Paul. So, again... This is how uniquely important Paul is to understanding the whole Bible properly. If we don't have Paul, we couldn't understand Jesus. That is God's design. To him was given grace, he says, grace to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. And in verse 9, to bring to light for everyone, so not just Gentiles, but Jews also, what is the plan... Right? Of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things 
one plan, one mystery, for one purpose, once hidden, now in the person and work of Christ, revealed, explained to us by Paul. The God who created everything also is the one who created and accomplished this plan for the fullness of time that Paul introduces the letter with back in chapter 1, verses 7 through 10, so that, so here's why in verse 10, here is the point then of God sending Paul to preach this grace to Gentiles, the grace that grafts them into the one people of God on the earth. All the unsearchable riches of Christ are for what? What are they for? To bring this plan of God to light for the world through this church. The redeemed people of God from every nation on planet earth. This is the climax of God's plan for human history in Christ. That's what gathers every time we gather here in Moundsville, West Virginia. It is through the church, and notice, only through the church and not until the church, beloved, that God's one plan for all creation is being made known. Paul proclaimed and revealed this so that the church would proclaim and continue to reveal this, that in and through Jesus Christ and what he has accomplished in redemption, God has planned to reveal to all creation, especially to the spiritual forces that are arrayed against him since the dawn of time, that nothing, and he means nothing, can stop him from fulfilling his plan for creation. It means, the church means that God wins. And it doesn't matter who says what, who has what power, who makes what threats, it doesn't matter. The fact that we exist, whether we gather in this building or in a basement or a meat freezer somewhere, means that Jesus Christ has done exactly what God sent him to do. And this, in verse 11, all this was according to the eternal purpose. So this is all, do you, you see the importance of that? God didn't shift plans midstream. He, he didn't, he, this has always been one plan to make one people in one Christ to proclaim one thing. That's God's eternal purpose. So when he was working before... Right through Noah, through Abraham, through Israel, all through the law covenant. There was a plan being carried out in stages, in progression, that reached its climax in Christ and the church His work creates. This was God's eternal purpose. It's always been the purpose. You see how now we have to read the Bible in light of what we see in the new? Right? That's so important for understanding the Bible correctly. Everything in the old is partial. Right? We can't make all the conclusions from what we read in the Old Testament. The Bible is one unified story. This has always been the one plan for which God created all things, and He has realized it. Past tense verbs. In Christ. That's what the church is. Don't forget that. The proof that God rules over everything in and through the grace of His Son. And God has realized that plan in Christ Jesus. We think the big deal comes at the end. 
Look, the, the end is maintenance. The big deal happened 2,000 years ago. That's the big deal. Right? We, we just, we love drama, right? Jesus won before you and I were ever born. Before any of us had the chance to mess it up. Praise God for Him. God has realized this plan. It's realized in Christ Jesus. He's not waiting on anything. You and I don't have to protect or save anything for Him. It's been realized we're here to pull people onto the boat. The church is glorious in Christ, beloved. Glorious is what we are in Christ. The realization of what God wanted to accomplish in creation, the very reason for which He made all things, has been realized in the person and work of Jesus Christ. So put our lives in perspective. Eternity isn't hinging on you. Nobody's soul is hinging on you. The realization of God's purpose for creation isn't hinging on you or who we can put in office or what laws we can make sure get enacted. We are Americans. We can vote. We should as civic servants of the place where God has put us. But beloved, it's over. It's realized. No big reveal is left. Nothing is left undone or needing to be fixed or finished or reconciled. No, no, it is finished. All that remains now is the final visible consummation of all these things when Christ returns literally bodily for the second time to judge the living and the dead. And so we pick it up going back to verse 11. This was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in Him. So, so here's why He said all this. So, I ask you not to lose heart over what I am suffering for you, which is your glory. Imagine being Paul. Your whole life mapped out for you as the Hebrew of Hebrews. And you end up sitting in prison with your suffering, your imprisonment. This man was beaten, whipped, stoned, and survived. Naked, running around, scared, hungry, in fear for his life, in danger all the time. Why? He says, imagine this was your life. He says, don't let my suffering make you afraid. My suffering is your glory. Your glory. Now, how can that be? Verses 12 and 13 take this huge, transcending, cosmic, all-encompassing truth of God and its purpose in Christ and make, makes it personal. That's what's happening in 12 and 13. It makes all this personal. It makes it real world in everyday life. In other words, there's a personal individual benefit for every member of this in time body called the church in light of what Christ has accomplished. And it is this, that in him, since that's where we are, remember, in Christ, all believers, since we are in him, we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith 
in Him. Bold access to what, beloved? God Himself. The heirs, members, and partakers have boldness, access, and confidence as that because faith, the means of our salvation back in 2, 8, and 9, the gift of God, it does something. It unites us to and places us in Christ who is at the Father's right hand, literally right now. That's also where you and I are this morning, believe. And every member of the church global is there also in Christ at the Father's right hand. That is how close God considers us to Himself. The world has no claim on that can do nothing to threaten that, challenge it, interrupt it. Such is the quality of your Christ and my Christ. We have direct, personal, daily, moment-by-moment access to God because we abide in the One who is at His right hand. So, in verse 13, Paul says, Don't falter then. Don't get so afraid to the point that you think, you know what, being a Christian is not going to be worth it in this world. Because you hear about my suffering, which again, namely here is his imprisonment in Rome. The fact that I'm suffering for you, Paul is saying. The fact that I'm in prison, a Jewish man is in prison for Gentiles. Because I'm proclaiming this gospel to Gentiles means your glory. He's saying to them, you do realize that. My imprisonment here means that you have won. And it is finished. And God is in charge. There will be suffering because we are those of faith. It doesn't mean God has forgotten. And it doesn't mean God doesn't care. Right? We, we try to remember to pray weekly when we gather for the persecuted church around the world. And it, it almost feels so empty because what do we know about that level of suffering? Our brothers and sisters in Mauritania, for example, in North, what, Northwest Africa. I think 46 million, 10,000 Christians. Um, leaving Islam to become a Christian is punishable. Right, You can be in prison for it. Killing is not on the books, but they do it, right? What if... What if that was evidence, not that Satan is getting the upper hand, but that Jesus has really won? Right? We think, well, that's a, that's a nice way to look at it. No, 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 that's God's way to look at it. Beloved, we do not look to what can be seen with your eyes. It is not reality. Oh, it's real. Please don't misunderstand me. It just, it isn't telling you the whole truth. It's not. It's not. Our suffering for the faith, right? Not our suffering because we can be because they're, you know, maybe we've sinned and we've messed up and we're suffering in light of that or, you know, on, on earth. God doesn't hold these things over us anymore, but the decisions we make here have consequences, even among those that love us. So there's that kind, again, there's that kind of suffering 
They're suffering because, you know, we're just in a fallen world and then people get sick and they, they die. There's the suffering of, that we experience because of evil, like these kids this past week. All the stuff coming out about that, man, who knows what to make of that? The reason there are wars, people lose their loved ones. Then there's the suffering because we are of faith and we are not of this world and we are sojourners and pilgrims here and we don't fit and it doesn't make sense and we're an offense to everybody that does have their hope for this world to be their savior. We are a reminder all the time that there is more than what can be seen. We are a constant reminder to our community, to Moundsville, to the Valley. The church is to West Virginia, to America, to the world, all over. The church is a reminder. Oh, that's right. There's a reckoning. There's a reckoning. We suffer for that. And if we haven't, we will in some form, right? Some of us, the suffering we'll experience for the faith is the rejection of family and friends that we thought loved us. And if you're going to follow Jesus, they don't want anything to do with you. You don't get invited around anymore. You don't get as many texts or hangout requests and things like that. that that's a form of suffering for the faith. You say, well, that's not suffering. It, feel that. That's When your family turns their back on you because of your faith in Christ, that is hurtful. That's family. All these kinds of things. And then the epitome of this suffering for the faith, imprisonment, martyrdom, being killed for our faith. It's real. God does not, God is not saying that because He is one, then you, it won't hurt. He's just saying, like He says through James, you do realize you can count all this joy. Doesn't mean you have to smile through it. That's, if you, I mean, that's not what He means. It just means, listen, do you realize what this means that you're hated? Do you realize what this means that you are worth silencing? Do you realize what this means that it could change governments and families? And What, what did Jesus say in that context? I'm not come to bring peace on earth, but a sword. I'll set a mother against her children and fathers and, and I mean, uh, beloved... That's that's this. It means from the eternal spiritual sense of God's eternal purpose for the world. Suffering for the faith means that God has won. And what's happening now is that he's dragging his net across the world, gathering in his people. All the fallout, all the raging, all the effects in our own lives that we can't control, it is all just dust in the wake of the plowman. And the plowman, beloved, is overtaking the reaper as we speak. Almighty God refers to suffering on account of being a believer at the hands of family, friends, government, authority, Satan. Doesn't matter who it is. He refers to our suffering on account of being a believer as our glory. Why, God? Because it means he has kicked the hornet's nest for the last time and it's all downhill for evil from here. Our suffering is just dust in the wake of the plowman. It is the result of the fact that God is reaping his great global harvest and Satan can do nothing about it 
until God unleashes him to do his worst one last time at the end of all things. The Lord of the harvest is bringing in the sheaves. He has pronounced the call of amnesty to the nations. The word has gone out through the magnificent revelation of the church. People can be redeemed. That's what this God that I've offended, that I know in my heart I'm sinning against and will give an account to. I can be saved. That's what the church is meant to let the world know, you see. Oh, there's amnesty. I I can be forgiven of all my sins and counted righteous and have my guilt washed away, all of it. Have all my sins. I, I can be clothed with the righteousness of Jesus for me rather than having to work up my own good behavior for God to accept me. Do you see how big the church is? It's proclaiming God's eternal purpose for creation all the time. Right? People can be saved. That's the big miracle, beloved. That's what all the other miracles are telling us. You realize what God has the power to do. Right? Oh, beloved, this is so exciting. This is so exciting. This is my identity while I'm asleep. What an amazing thing sleep is. So weird. God programmed human beings to need eight hours where they do nothing. There's so much to be done. Yeah. And God says, I can do it without you. But while you're awake, I'll use you. But you need sleep. You can't keep going. That's why I'm here. Right? What what a thing. What a thing. Right, to, to be the vessel of God's revelation to the cosmos. Satan hates us. Right, his minions hate us. Do you know why? Because we're in Christ. And he can't touch us. Right, and look, if, if it was, if we weren't in Christ, we are no match for that foe. No match for him. Right, we, I don't say that to tease. Or be triumphant. I don't want that smoke, right? No. But I'm in Christ. I'm in Christ. I hide behind Christ with no shame. He's put me in himself. I am in Christ. Beloved, I'm safe. They can kill my body, but I'm not this. They can take this. This is not what I am. This is not what I am. This fallen, foul, sinful body. That's not me anymore. We're in Christ. You are not the sum total of the choices you've made. You're in Christ, believer. And if you don't believe and you're saying, well, what what can I do? Receive this. It's the truth. Just believe it. Receive it, really. What, What is the work I have to do for God to accept me? Believe the one he has sent. This Jesus. Right. It's... All the upheaval that brings personal suffering is the earth reeling and rocking, beloved. The old creation groaning, waiting for the revelation to the entire cosmos of the sons of God. The enemy lashing out his last gasps because the center of all creation, after a successful attempt to murder him, has instead risen and ascended to the place of victory and God's plan. God's plan for this rock is the one that will be realized. His purpose for the world is the one that will be. This is how suffering produces endurance. How could suffering, wouldn't suffering work against endurance? Not in God's design, not in Romans 5. 
through suffering we are enduring. So, beloved, let's, let, let's let our identity now that we know we have in two and three shape our perspective. Let the gospel make us endure. Just lean into Christ. All that is wrong is in the process of finally being set right. Right? And look, if you get a bone horribly broken, what do they have to do to fix it? It's got to be set. That hurts. Right? Setting it. But it makes it right. And it heals it. The forces of darkness and sin hate that everything is being made right and made new in Christ. But you and I need to know and believe there's nothing they can do about it. Other than harm our bodies. What faith grants and takes hold of is the believer's eternally certain basis for hope. Even in suffering. The fact that God has realized His eternal purpose in Christ Jesus our Lord by creating the church to be His eternal vessel of proclamation means that even our suffering is evidence of His victory and is our glory and therefore ought to actually strengthen our faith. May Christ give us rest this day. No matter what we face, beloved, no matter what is to come. Let your Christ give you rest based on what is outside of you and does not depend on you to keep, to build, or to sustain. Rest in Christ. And if you don't know Him, You are invited. You are invited by Him through the mouth of this sinner to receive Christ, to repent of your sins, ask forgiveness for your rebellion, and place all your hope for salvation and life on Him. That we may all, in this day, safe in the Son of God.